Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to the podcast. You're back again. Thank you. I'm going to jump right in with my guest, Ian Thomas, who's the group creative director at Virtue. He is a man of many things. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to do this right, Ian. Let me see how I do. He is an AI evangelist and the author of numerous books and creative projects. He's worked with some of the biggest companies and institutions to bring their ideas to life. One idea or one area is Coca-Cola NFT, one of the most successful branded NFTs ever made. That's non-fungible tokens for those of you paying attention. He continues to work on projects focused on Web 3.0, the metaverse, and innovative opportunities. And he is an international number one best-selling creator, new media artist, and has recently announced the publication of his book, which is What Makes Us Human. He explores human spirituality using the evolving technology of artificial intelligence. He's written this in collaboration with a language model that uses deep learning to produce human texts. So he's the first author that I know of that has been working with AI to author the book. So welcome, Ian. Thank you for being here. Let me first say that, look, I see a lot of common themes here, kind of like I outlined, but man, that's a lot of interests. What is your brand within all of this? What is the thread that pulls everything together? It's honestly one of the biggest struggles of my life is is, is, is kind <laughs> of choosing the one thing. And it's, it's really frustrating because I do it for clients all the time where I have to sit with them and go, these are all the things you could be, but you need to condense yourself down and represent one thing, you know, to, to the market or to the public. And I am terrible at it. I, I end up doing so many different weird and wonderful creative things that um, I find it incredibly creatively satisfying. Um, but it can be a little bit um, schizophrenic or, or discombobulating. But if I, if I had to choose something, for, for me, it's very much this kind of um, meeting place of creativity and the humanities and technology, you know, and what technology can enable. Um, when I was very young, um, I grew up uh, in a place called Port Elizabeth on the, the tip of South Africa. Um, and... I grew up in one of the first households to have some kind of internet access back then in the 90s, um, you know, bulletin board services as they were back in the day. And um, mm -hmm. my, um, I was very lucky to be exposed to all of this. And I was always fascinated by the power of technology to connect people, which I think is lost on younger generations. I think, you know, the internet is this ubiquitous, ubiquitous thing. Um, but, you know, I... It, it was this powerful, magical thing for me. And so I've always kind of kept that magic, you know, as, as an almost spiritual creative thing where I've come back to it again and again to explore it in all these weird and wonderful different ways. Creativity and humanities connecting people with technology. How was that? Yeah. Pretty good? Yeah. There you go. I can't <laughs> Look, you could either. also, with... <laughs> With that voice and accent, you could also be a radio announcer. You could add that to the to, to yeah. the list, I think. Well, if, <laughs> if all this doesn't work out, you know, there's always that. I outlined kind of your experience, et cetera, but I'd like to hear it from you. Could you level set us a bit more in terms of where you've been, what brought you here, what's your experience? I'll, I'll do my best. So I mentioned that I grew up in Port Elizabeth in, in South Africa. Yep. Um, and I 
was very lucky to have um, or to still have a brother who, who is quite different to me. He's very technologically minded, very process driven, very granular. I'm very abstract and philosophical. You know, I can tell jokes. He can't. Um, <laughs> but he, he's also very good with numbers and can remember phone numbers and things like that, which I can't do. Um, he actually ended up getting arrested by Interpol at the age of 16 for hacking into Belgium's telephone network. And so I was very much, you know, within the space with a group of hackers and as they were called back then, freakers, um, you know, who would mess around with phone lines and do all these weird and wonderful things. And so, like I said, like that, that exposure earlier on to a very creative person kind of left me with this fascination with technology. And that's, you know, come through again and again in all these, these different ways. Um, one of the really big ways is uh, with the rise of, you know, blogging and social media in the 2000s, I started a poetry and photography blog, um, which was kind of unheard of at the time because a lot of blogs were about soccer or cooking recipes. And I created this multimedia experiment called I Wrote This For You, which was centered around um, the pronoun you. And I wrote these short stories, these poems combined with these photographs that this photographer from Japan would send me once a day. And we've never met. We've been doing that since around 2007. And uh, eventually it became insanely popular and it became one of the best-selling collections of poetry ever published when it was eventually published. And so that you know kind of creative side of my life paralleled a marketing advertising side of my life because that's always great to, to pay the bills and to be creatively fulfilled um and at the same time i've you know won a whole bunch of awards um done a whole bunch of you know fascinating things for everyone from nike to coca-cola to you know pretty much everyone in between um and a few years ago i uh, not even a few years ago uh, probably about two years ago i got really into GPT-3 as an artificial intelligence. Um, for a long time, I kind of theorized that copywriting could be automated. Um, I could see how I'd been doing it as a creative person and how you know the younger copywriters that I briefed would do it. There would be these similar kinds of processes, these similar kinds of patterns. And so one day I saw on Product Hunt that someone had released something called copysmith.ai which was a mm -hmm. GPT-3 driven copywriting platform. And so I looked at this and I was like, this is exactly what I believe could happen. And so without any introduction, I tracked down the founder um, who was this uh, uh, wonderful woman in her early 20s in Canada. And I managed to video call her while she was eating breakfast the one morning and say, I don't care how I'm involved with this, but I have to be involved with this. Um, in some way, shape, or form, because I think this is the future. Um, and she was just glad to have someone involved, you know, who had a, a large background in marketing and copywriting and, you know, all of those different things. And so for for months, I, I worked with them to go, this is how I come up with an idea for an ad. This is how I write a headline. This is how I write a tagline. And it's mind-blowing in terms of how good it is. I, I honestly, I, I can't overstate enough how 
impactful I think AI is going to be on the creative arts over the next few years. Um, and it was it was it was honestly like seeing aliens or angels in terms of how profound you know GPT three is at mimicking you know these supposedly fundamentally human arts. At some point, um, myself and uh, Jasmine Wang, the co-founder, um, decided to write a book together. I'd come up with this idea um, called What Makes Us Human. And um, that's coming out in November. And I realized as much as I could train GPT-3 to come up with ad ideas or headlines or all these different things, I could train it on pretty much anything. So I trained it on the poetry of Rumi, the Bible, the Tao Te Ching, um, the lyrics of Leonard Cohen, anything and everything that I could find that was profoundly spiritual and moving and inspirational. And I, I put it all together um, and I had a conversation with the resulting intelligence. And the book is the record of that conversation. So I asked, you know, why do we suffer or how do we you know, overcome the death of a loved one? Or what is the meaning of life? And its responses are, are beautiful, you know, and poetic and poignant and original, you know. So, um, and at the same time as I'm doing that, I am a group creative director at Virtue, like I said, where I'm the, I'm also the global creative director of Coca-Cola um, within the agency. Um, and we do a lot of metaverse work for them. And I don't know, my, you know, my work and my art and everything kind of speaks to each other and I, I jump around. So that's, I'm terrible at nutshells. I realize that's incredibly, incredibly. <laughs> no, that was pretty good though, man. Now it's so many things I, I need to unpack. I'm like, where do I, know, I begin I'm sorry. with this? I'm no, sorry. no, all good. First of all, how's your brother doing? Is he a, uh, is he, he free? <laughs> he, uh, he works for, for a bank in quant trading. So he does fine. He's, uh, he's doing very well for himself. How did the Interpol thing shape out? He was underage, and there wasn't actually a law against what he was doing. If you remember in the eighties, um, and nine, sorry, in the nineties, when you know uh, freakers and hackers were getting caught over here in the U.S., they were getting charged under wire fraud laws because that was the closest thing they had, you know, at that point yeah. legally to go after them with. We had nothing like that in South Africa, so they knew what he was doing was illegal. They had no way of locally prosecuting him. And he was underage. He was he was 16 years old at the time. I was 14, you know. So um, they confiscated his computer. Um, and after a lengthy process, he got it back. But um, yeah, those were those were some really fascinating and fun times. Um, you know, I actually, uh, in, in, there was a gentleman in my high school that... Uh, I don't, you know, for lack of a better term, they, it was breaking into different systems and whatnot. And s same scenario, one of the companies that he broke into ended up pirating. Yeah. Uh, what I find really fascinating is, you know, back then it, it truly was the Wild West of the internet in terms of, you know, there just being no regulations, no barriers, no nothing. You know, it was just bulletin board services and modems. And even, you know, the, the traditional web that came after that was still, you know, crazy in terms in terms mm -hmm. of what was out there without these like you know kind of centralized um platforms that we have today you know which are the kind of hangover from web 2 that wild west energy that i felt then i feel today in artificial intelligence you know if i look at you know the kind of ai that i look at which is like gpt3 which is you know dali which is also made by open ai you know stable diffusion mid journey you know all these different creative platforms that are 
just popping up, you know, week by week. It's that similar kind of energy, you know, in terms of it just being the absolute wild west where everything is and anything seems to be possible. There's so many things to break down. You're probably going to have to lead me a little bit here. I, um, sure. you know, I, I often think that I'm pretty well in front of technology, but th two things scare me. One is mm. I've outsourced my home IT to my wife which is very embarrassing. <laughs> don't you, don't <laughs> you now, work for IBM? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yeah, but she does all the routers and everything. And now it's it's very embarrassing for me to go, hey, the internet's down. What the hell's going on? <laughs> and the second thing is I read your bio and I'm looking at NFTs, Web 3.0, and I'm thinking, oh man, this is, this is going to be interesting. But uh, uh, I think I might be out in front, but uh, given comparatively to you, uh, I don't, think that's even close to the case. I see a lot of topics here uh, and I'm going to break it down. You tell me if, if one I miss or one you want to remove or one you want to add. I see AI just in general, NFTs, Web 3.0 in the metaverse, the book. I want to you know break that down as well on human spirituality. I presume you're, you got to be a crypto guy as well. You a crypto guy? I have to be for the sake of the sake, the sake of our clients I'll, I'll i'll drop in on that for a minute um you know the thing that i always say at work is that we have to be responsibly excited about the technology because i think that within that space there's a lot of snake oil um i think there's a lot of criticism that's very well deserved of the space um but i think the problem is that there's the very real potential that we we throw the baby out with the bathwater, where there is some really fascinating stuff going on with you know new forms of ownership we know young people are really fascinated by that whether that's in a video game and that's a skin or it's a board ape yacht club or a crypto punk or whatever else it is mm -hmm. you know there there's something there and i i see it you know in a similar kind of way you know going back to that era again of the first web where you had you know that massive bubble that burst but out of that bubble you know, came these massive platforms that have, have had these profound effects on society in terms of how we, we live and work and, and navigate the world from Google to Amazon and so on. So I think, you know, the crypto bubble has burst, um, but I think that there's some really fascinating utility and, you know, things that, that are really, really interesting, you know, that, that still exist within the space. So are you an investor then? Are you willing to say? Slightly. 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 I, I have some So you exposure. just believe, you, you think the technology has a lot to offer one way or another. If I know this much is true. I know young people especially are fascinated by new forms of ownership. You know, I think that previous generations, you know, millennials in particular, we've, um, we've kind of rented our lives, whether it's Netflix or, you know, Audible or whatever it is, you know, we've kind of just come to accept, like, we're going to, to rent these different things. And what we've seen is young people want to own things. They want to own things in different ways. They want their avatars within video games to own things. They want, you know, their NFTs to be able to give them access, you know, to concerts or to experiences or to clothing. If you look at what, you know, Nike and their, their Web3 Studio artifact are doing, we know that for a fact, you know? And so, building things around that and satisfying those those desires and and is 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 working out you know and it's 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 paying off in spades i think like you know you brought up in the intro the the first nft we did for coca-cola which for, was for friendship day which was the world's first 
openable NFT. We created this, you know, beautiful fridge that you could open, and inside it was a digital wearable you could wear into Centraland, um, which is a you know metaverse blockchain-driven game. We minted or created the actual sound of a Coke being opened, and we created a trading card, and we sold that for around sixty thousand um, US dollars. And you know we're we're continuing to do stuff in that space that I think is really interesting. Um, that's building community, that's creating connections between people in really fascinating and new ways. So let's let's talk about NFTs for a bit. I, I think I'm more like your brother. <laughs> sure. I'm the the, the process oriented. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, my artists or, or my uh, creative side is more on the music side. I love music. I like to mess around with music, etc. I love sports and I love, um, you know, technology, but, you know, very process driven and stuff. NFTs are difficult for me. I mean, like Mm. I'm the person logically that looks out and sees an NFT by Beeple every day is the first 5,000 days. I'm sure you're aware sales for $69 million. The, you know, one of the most expensive works to be sold. Now I, I'm, I know it was kind of a, uh, it was a way to set up other, you know, sales and stuff. I mean, in other words, I think they were, they were doing it for a reason, not just for the art itself. But anyway, mm. he displays the artwork in a digital museum in the metaverse. I mean, I'm like, wow. Uh, I, I'm. This is where, like I say, I'm not out in front of where I should be. First of all, I cannot put my head around a seven sixty nine million dollars for something that's digital in the metaverse where I got to go view it. Sure. Other people could copy it in and take or, or print it out or something. Tell me about NFTs. Start basic because, you know, I think our, our listeners will appreciate that, what they sure. are and where you think they are today and where they're going. Sure. So, you know, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, you know, when something is fungible, it means that, you know, they're interchangeable. So dollar bills, for example, are fungible you know you have one dollar bill it's the same as every other dollar bill it doesn't really matter an nft is a little bit more like a lottery ticket or a receipt it has a specific value assigned to it and it can point to a specific thing so in the case of artwork which is perhaps you know the most famous use case of nfts currently we can say that if you own this digital token this digital receipt it also means that you own this specific animation or picture or song or you know ticket whatever whatever you want to make it i think from an artwork perspective it's really fascinating and i think that there are parallels in the world that you can look at that kind of make sense of it you know specifically within things like venable goods you know goods which people buy for the sake of status to be able to say i own this thing you know and that makes me unique in terms of my ownership i can you know take a photograph of the mona lisa and I can, you know, print it out and put it in my office, but I, I don't own it. I'm not going to fool anyone into thinking that I do own it. If you look at something like, you know, a Richard Millet watch, which can go for $6 million for something that tells the time, you know, it doesn't make sense on a rational market-driven kind of level. But in terms of it being something that people want to own, that they want to have as a status symbol, it makes sense. That's at the very like high end of the market, you know. The, when we're talking about things like Beeples or CryptoPunks or Board Ape Yacht Club, 
these different artworks and different projects that go for a lot of money that Jimmy Kimmel own, that Paris Hilton own. But I think that kind of misses the the wood for the trees, so to speak. I don't think we're going to be seeing as much of that kind of thing. I think where we will see a lot more use of NFTs and you know digital tokens is almost treating them more like wristbands to a concert or loyalty cards for restaurants or a lot more kind of functional straightforward use cases because there's that aspect of 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 them as well that's kind of being ignored because of all the big news about all the other projects mm -hmm. involving them so, so th that hmm. by the way for those crypto punk i think that's what it's called that was 11 over 11 million dollars but i know that hmm. to your point this is why i wanted to have this conversation i think those things grab the headlines yeah and you're saying look put those things aside there are other use cases, everyday use cases that we will see not only now, but in the future getting steam. Mm. You, you mentioned a few, but you can talk a few of those, what we can expect. Sure. You know, so, I mean, Louis Vuitton has their own proprietary blockchain, which they use, you know, to track the different materials and elements that make up their bags to make sure that every element, you know, every leather strap, every part of it, you know, gets, um, is an authentic piece of it. Um, as another example, you know, the work we're currently doing with Coca-Cola, um, we've released NFTs and digital tokens for International Hamburger Day, for Pride, you know, for um, Friendship Day again. And, you know, our plan is to use those to grant access to projects like Coke Studios, you know, which is Coca-Cola's global music platform, or to Coca-Cola Creations, which is our limited edition flavors and innovations where we partner with you know concerts and entertainment groups like tomorrowland or singers like ava max and if you own one of these digital tokens you know you can be rewarded in all these you know these weird and wonderful ways so there it is much more of a kind of access point than it is you know a piece of high art so to speak um you know there are people doing experiments within literature for example you know can you create an nft of a book um, and those are succeeding to a greater or lesser or lesser extent. And so there's this kind of momentum that's built or that has been building and there has been a bubble, but there's a lot of people who, despite the fact that there's been this bubble, they're continuing to make and create different things. The, the most ideal, you know, um, idealistic way you can look at NFTs is that specifically within the artwork space, at least is that they are accessible by everyone and ownable by one person, which is really a revolution for creative individuals who work within the digital space. Because for a long time, you know, people have had to make their money from Spotify, you know, or trying to sell hundreds of millions of, of, of tracks in order to make a few dollars. You know, 3LAU, a musician, you know, released his last album as a series of NFTs where you could just get the album or you could buy something more where it came with, you know, digital artwork or it came with some kind of access or utility where you could, you know, have a conversation with him or at the very high end, you know, he would work with you, you know, to create a track and he sold that for a lot of money and he's probably made way more money than he ever would have made, you know, working through Spotify. So that's, you know, one example of that being a very rewarding interaction for, for artists. There's a whole bunch of different projects, some of which are doing well, some of which, you know, a lot of which are not doing well. Um, 
but I think when we come out the other side, there's there's a lot of there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. I know that you you've got the the Coke uh, NFT. Can you say either more on that or other use cases that you you've been involved with? Sure. So the Coke stuff is really interesting. I'm obviously very biased because I'm very involved with it. I can't I can't say too much about it, but I will say that we're using it to build a community around the essence of the brand, which is around real magic. And so mm-hmm. as we go forward, I'm going to be really excited to be able to share a lot more around that. In terms of me personally, I have released a few different artworks as NFTs. Um, I recently, um, and when I say recently, I mean a year ago, um, released an artwork called Fragments of Sappho. So, you know, this kind of combines NFTs and artificial intelligence. So it's probably the right topic for this conversation. Sappho was this incredible poet from, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, She is so brilliant that even today we know about her. But unfortunately, all that's left of her poetry is literally fragments, literally fragments Mm -hmm. of scrolls, you know, two or three sentences that you can find and read. And, and, you know, they're really moving, really beautiful sentences. Mm -hmm. There are two complete poems and that's it. And what I worked out was that I could take the two complete poems and prompt GPT-3 with those two complete poems and then feed it the fragments one by one and get it to write the rest of the poem the missing parts of the of those fragments and so gpt3 wrote completed these poems that have been lost you know for for 2000 years and that's the kind of thing that i love like i i especially with artificial intelligence with what i'm seeing from a creative creative standpoint like i honestly think it's like discovering the steam engine where when you discover the steam engine, you don't immediately understand that it's going to lead to locomotives and it's going to lead to industrialization. But I see AI as a steam engine. And I think that we cannot predict the kind of things that we're going to be building with it. I think it's 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 going to profoundly alter society and culture. I've often thought about how it will bring back the humanities. But I got to tell you, most of the time that I have folks on here, either we're talking about the Terminator <laughs> that's going to be yeah. created or some other thing. We're talking about augmented intelligence, all good stuff, automation and different things like that. But I don't have enough people on to talk about the humanities because I agree with you. I've done mm. some studies on it as well. And there's a lot of opportunity. Now, I'm still trying to understand it all. Like on the poem you mentioned, do you see the GPT-3 finishing is accurate? I mean, I I mean you get where I'm going I, absolutely. I mean, you don't know, you know, she's, she's been gone for 2000 years. So we, we can't ask her if we were to discover, you know, a complete copy of the poem we'd know. But I think what's fascinating is that it points towards a solution to something that would otherwise be impossible. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I quite often think about when I see a lot of the, the artwork generated by, by artificial intelligence is that it's a there's a resolution challenge where you know it's kind of good in some instances it's incredible but if you you know you you went through this this journey with technology as well i'm sure where you know the very first computers were monochrome and then there was cga and ega graphics and eventually you got a super vga monitor and it looked beautiful and you know tablets were you know a kindle and then they were full color and then you started off with a pebble watch and then you had a full color apple watch 
And there's a similar kind of thing going on at a fantastic rate in terms of the accuracy, in terms of the, the fidelity of what the AI is generating. You know, GPT-3 has been out for, I think, you know, two or three years now. Um, and whatever comes next is going to be even more profoundly accurate and human. So without, you know, a copy of the poem, we don't know. But I will say that what GPT-3 wrote um, is really beautiful. I'll, I'll, if you give me a minute, I'll actually pull up one of the completions. So I'm sure the folks are listening, no different than me, are thinking, all right, AI, you got to teach it. It only knows what you teach. Uh, you could have, you're a poet, you could have mm -hmm. finished that poem. What does GPT-3 yeah. offer that you could never do? GPT-3 never gets tired. As a creative person, and I am... You know, I'm created professionally. That's what I do day in, day out, is I come up with ideas. It is exhausting. It is, it is exhausting to be a creative person. And you have, you know, kind of moments when you're filled with potential and energy, and then you need a cup of coffee, and then you need to go outside and stare at a cloud for a while. Um, and then you need to forget about it and go back. GPT-3 just keeps going. One of the most fundamental laws of creativity is that to come up with a good idea, to come up with a good idea, you need, you need to come up with a lot of ideas. And there is nothing on earth that can come up with more ideas than GPT-3 or artificial intelligence generally. And so I foresee the role of the creative person, the professional creative person going forward as being very much that of a curator, where you understand what a good idea looks like, where you understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, and you work with augmented intelligence to kind of generate things until you get there. And you can go, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And I think it's a collaborative process. I don't think it's, I think there are people, and I think there's a lot of people who are very worried about it, where they think it's going to become this thing where you push a button, you go away, get a cup of coffee, and you come back and everything's done for you. It's a lot more like 3D printing, where you print something, there's bits of plastic, you know, that are still stuck onto it. You've got to break things off. You've got to polish them. You've got to tweak them. But what you get out of it is incredibly rewarding. You know, so, so I think that's, that's one of the really big things. I think there's other, you know, um, there's other examples like the book, What Makes Us Human. I came up with the idea for the book and the idea wrote the book, you know, so it so actually Say changed. more on that. Tell, tell me more on that, on how that plays out. So I came up with the idea, you know, of training an artificial intelligence on all these profound, spiritual, sacred, you know, texts, or not training it, prompting it to be more technically accurate. Um, and, you know, in having the conversation, I didn't write the output. I am a poet. I am an, I am a, an author. So I understand what good writing looks like. And so I could sit with it and go through everything it generated and go, that is beautiful. That is profound. That is moving. You know, that is insightful. And cherry pick. And then go, and, you know, this is the conversation that I, I want to share with the world. Um, and so that's fascinating. I mean, I think one of the really interesting use cases I can see for humanities-based artificial intelligence or media-based artificial intelligences, um, whether it's text or it's, you know, visualization technologies like DALI, is in building out very real metaverse experiences. So one of the big challenges when we speak about things like a metaverse or the metaverse is that, you know, these massive AAA games, um, 
that get made require armies of animators, teams of writers to put them together. But if you can sit there and say, I would like to walk through an 18th century castle in Germany, you know, or I would like to see, you know, be in a forest on the edge of a galaxy and look out at the stars. We're not that far away from an AI being able to take that desire and manifest it in really profound and interesting ways. And you know, that think... comes back to my, my point about resolution, where we, right now we're looking at images. Some, some technologies are, are animating you know, what DALI and, and stable diffusion are putting together. And I, I think we're probably you know, a few years away from, from that kind of experience. Look, I totally, so we're on the metaverse now a little bit too, which is great. I wanted to talk about it. I get exactly what you're describing. I would love to go through, you know, I've been to the Coliseum, but I'd love to go through it again, you know, walk through all the different alleys that I didn't get to go through and all this stuff. That would be just so fantastic. I just, does it mean that I've lost it, that I don't want to be virtual and, and have a have a dinner with somebody virtually? I'd rather have a dinner with somebody face-to-face. Does that mean the times are passing me or what? Yes. No, not entirely. Um, <laughs> At least you're honest. I love it. No, no. I mean, I, this is this is the thing. You know, I, you know, within Vice, you know, where where I work, we work with a lot of young people, um, and their tech, their attitude towards technology and very deep digitally immersive experiences is very different. And you know, even before the pandemic, there were a lot of young people who were using platforms like Fortnite or, you know, League of Legends or whatever whatever they were playing, you know, or just their mm-hmm. Discord server to connect with each other and to have these friendships and to have these profound experiences. And the pe- pandemic compounded that in a really, really fundamental way. You have a lot of really young people who missed out on really key moments within their lives. And so they did their best to have them and they had them in virtual spaces. And so they have this deep appreciation for what digital connection means, which I think might be a little bit lost on, 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 on someone not within one of those, gener- those generations. I'm also not a big fan of virtual reality, to be entirely honest with you. Um, I find it very hard to drink a cup of coffee with an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift on my head. Um, I'm not sure I want to be having meetings in virtual reality. It's bad enough having meetings over Teams or Google Meet or whatever <laughs> it else it is. That's what I, mean. I, you know, for a for a where I am very bullish is is an, is augmented reality, where the reality that we experience is augmented. Um, we have digital experiences that blend into the real world. We can take those glasses off. We can go and do something else. We can put them back on. And I think that is where the future probably lies in terms of, you know, deep metaverse driven experiences. We know Apple is going to release something at some point soon. We know Meta's working on something similar. Um, so I think those things are happening. And look, you know, if people don't like it, it won't work. So we'll, 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 we'll see what happens. Well, look, I, I certainly believe the virtual world has its place. Don't get me wrong. And uh... sure. And I also am really excited to see like some of the examples you provide in terms of being able to go look through some of the ancient castles, being able to watch a sports game on the 50 yard line or in the actually on the field itself, 
mm. on a regular basis or something. That would be very cool. It's just hanging out there for hours on end. But I think I Zuckerberg's think that... right. He's going all in. Hell, he's renamed the company. Yeah. And I, I think we'll see if that was the right move or not. I Look, I agree with you completely. I don't want to spend hours, you know, within that kind of a space. Like, if I wanted to play soccer, I would go out onto a field and play soccer. Play soccer. I don't want I don't want to put on a headset, you know, and connect up a whole bunch of stuff to do something I could be doing outside. If there is something that elevates those experiences, that creates connection where there otherwise couldn't be connection, where you get to sit on that 50-yard line with your friends from college that you haven't seen in 20 years, where AI creates an experience where you can speak to a player who's been dead for 20 years, you know, and ask him his opinion on the game, then there are some really fascinating reasons to be within that space, you know? Um, and that's, look, you know, I, I don't know. I'm putting those examples off the top of my head. Podcast listeners, we're going to stop it there. We're going to continue with Ian Thomas next week. Next week, you'll hear about writing the book with AI. He'll talk about the meaning of life that AI gave him bias. And look, we're going to do snippets from the book as well. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.